0: Hey friends, welcome back to The Woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts. Today what we want to talk about is Charles Finney, the father of modern revivalism. He was a very popular but a very divisive person in his day and we'll see what carryover he has into our modern day and modern traditions. So stick around and we'll get started. friends. Well, today we want to talk about Mr. Charles Grandison Finney. And he was, uh, he's known as the, basically the father of modern day revivalism. He would be a hero to Dwight Moody. He would be a, uh, uh, hero to Billy Graham, uh, pretty much every sparkle-shirted Pentecostal preacher and every skinny jean metrosexual megachurch pastor at the same time. So there is a lot of holdover from Mr. Finney uh, into modern-day Christianity, especially in your non-denominational, your spirit field, uh, even into your Baptist churches. All of these kind of follow a lot of what he started. So he's very uh, a revolutionary or pivot. Person in church history uh, that brings us to what we know of today as modern church. So, first, let's get to know Charles Finley. Now, Charles Finney was born in the pre Civil War America. Uh, You know, he ministered through the Civil War time and even in post, you know, the the post war um, reconstruction. He primarily ministered in upstate New York, where many cults and false religions were started, your Mormonism and various different things. Upstate New York doesn't have a good reputation of birthing solid ministers or or great religious movements, but there in upstate New York is Charles Finney. Now, he's a former school teacher, goes to law school, uh, is beginning his law practice, and he's also a worship leader in a local Presbyterian church. The only problem is, is that he's not a Christian. He's not saved, which is probably most worship leaders in church today as well. And so he's not a Christian, but he's leading worship because he has a musical gift or a musical talent, and he's there in his local Presbyterian church, and he he feels conviction because he knows he's not a Christian, and he goes out into the woods in an effort to settle his own salvation. Well, during this time of personal reflection and and prayer in the woods, he comes to what he believes is a saving faith and settles his salvation. He quits his law practice the very next day to begin to preach. Now, he is going to be licensed by the Presbyterian Church, and he would be assigned to a local congregation, but they said that his preaching style was much less than, than what the normal Presbyterian Church uh, pastor would offer, and it was much more like a, like a lawyer arguing with a jury, And so everything's kind of rolling along, and and the church is doing well, and then he goes home to visit his in-laws with his wife, and there he's invited to preach at his home church, where he ministered as an unsaved minister of music. And during his time there, he preaches, and it's wildly successful. The people greatly respond to his preaching. There's kind of a a, uh, revival of sorts within the church, and then the other Presbyterian churches in the area hear of it, and they think, well, let's recreate the magic. Why not have a sequel right here in our church? And So they book the young Mr. Finney as well. Well, as he goes in and he preaches, and with this style, there is some stirring up. There is some some new faith that begins. There is some reinterest in the church that's that's reintroduced. And so, during this time of revivalism, uh, he's booked. Throughout all of the neighboring towns, his fame begins to spread, and he is a very magnetic figure. Uh, People just enjoyed his preaching. He was very entertaining. He was something to see. He was quite the show. And so uh, they say that he lacked a very uh, formality and the rigidity of former religion of the day. But the thing is, is that he very much uh, rejected the Presbyterian doctrine and practice of the day as well. So though he carried the the Presbyterian flag, he didn't carry it very well. He was kind of a non-Presbyterian, pretending to be a Presbyterian, and uh, advancing Presbyterianism, but it wasn't really Presbyterianism. It was something very different. In fact, he didn't even claim to follow uh, Presbyterian doctrine, which of the day, and still today, is primarily Calvinism. And then also, he didn't follow... Presbyterian practice as well. Instead, he came up with what he called new measures. Now, we're going to talk about new measures later on in the broadcast, but he wasn't, he wasn't only beloved and he wasn't only championed, but rather he did have a lot of critics of the day. So a lot of the more formal ministers, the, the well-trained ministers, the well-educated ministers of the day, took great offense to him. Probably the most notable and the most popular of the day is Lyman Beecher. Now, Lyman Beecher was a well-respected Presbyterian minister who upon hearing of Finney and his uh, his flaming uh, popularity that's coming up, his rising star, uh, Lehman, Lyman Beecher hears that he's planning on coming to Connecticut, which is where Lyman preaches. And, uh, and with that, Lyman threatened to meet Finney at the state line with a gun. He said, you're not bringing that in here. You can have it up there in the silly upstate New York area, but you're not bringing it into Connecticut. Now, Lyman Beecher, his daughter, Harriet Beecher Stowe, would later go on to write Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so there, he is a respected, renowned figure. He is a father of 13. He, he dedicates his whole life to the ministry, and he takes severe uh, um, caution with the young Mr. Finney and with this new thing, this newfangledy way of, of uh, holding church services. Well, it's not long after he starts getting resistance from the Presbyterian ministers and from the respected institutions uh, around in the larger churches that he actually breaks with the Presbyterian church and goes into the congregational churches. Now, congregational churches, much different than the Presbyterian model, where the Presbyterian model does have a presbytery, it does have a hierarchy, there is some checks and balances, it is a denomination. Where the congregational model, every church is autonomous, much like your Baptist churches of today and a lot of your Pentecostal churches as well. And so with that, he was a lot more welcome in the congregational churches because he didn't have to go through any elders, he didn't have to go through any boards, he didn't have to go through any bishops or anything, but rather, just if they wanted to sell out, if they wanted to pack their church, if they wanted some new life breathed into them, then come on in here and see what happens. And so with that, he begins a friendly relationship with the Congregationalist churches even though the Congregationalist churches of that day, and by and large today as well, still embrace Calvinism. And he is much, much not a Calvinism. Now, he continues with the Calvin, with the Congregationalist churches and revivals uh, around that upstate New York and through some of the upper colonies until uh, he finally leaves uh, the constant revival circuit, the traveling preacher, to settle down in New York City at the Broadway Tabernacle. Now, no doubt, after spending years on the road, traveling from site to site, preaching for two, three, four, five days at a time, and uh, just to pick up and move to the next location, uh, here, Finney, with his wife and children in tow, very much would have enjoyed being in one place and actually having a home. And so he ministers at the Broadway Tabernacle trying to uh, recreate this passion, trying to have this constant ongoing uh, revival that just never stops and just sees constant conversions, constant growth. Uh, he's there for a while, but soon he begins to burn out. And so with that, he gets offered a, a, uh, to be the president of Oberlin College in Ohio. The problem is, at this point, there is no Oberlin College in Ohio, so he has to move to Oberlin, and he's provoked to do so, or asked to do so, by a group of seminary students who had come to faith during his revivals, and with that, they were dissatisfied with the education that they were receiving in mainline uh, institutions, or in mainline seminaries of the day, and they wanted to be trained more in his revival culture, in the how-to versus the what does God say. And so with that, he agrees to move to Oberlin, Ohio, which of the day is kind of like the frontier. You know, they, they hadn't really settled that far. There wasn't a, a um, you know, the road system and things in there. So it very much was almost like the wild, wild west of the day that he agrees to move to Ohio and there to set up this Oberlin College. Now Oberlin College would make waves, and it would get gain traction or notoriety because of its admittance of women into the college, its admittance into uh, you know uh, blacks into the college, uh, which was something that was very strange for the day. It was very odd uh, for them to do that, but. Lyman was, or I'm sorry, Finney was very much an anti slavery advocate, and so he wanted to make sure that everybody had equal opportunities. He was very engaged in social issues of the day and social change of the day, and ministered through this Jacksonian uh, you know, era of American politics and American culture. And so they uh, leaned on the progressive side and would admit women and blacks into the seminary. Now, one of the things that's really cool is that the Oberlin College would actually be one of the mainstay stops on the Underground Railroad of trafficking slaves or former slaves into Canada for their freedom. And so this would gain him some notoriety and definitely is a good thing. Kudos, Mr. Finney, for that. So, what we have is we have Mr. Finney who uh, has a conversion... He pastors a church, then his fame uh, kind of outruns his education and his experience, and he has to kind of make it up as he goes along, until then, after suffering burnout and, and having his adversaries, he settles down into one location, only then to leave New York City for Oberlin, Ohio. That, that's usually not the way that things go. A lot of people don't move from New York City to the frontier, but here, Mr. Finney does. And so he settles down. He also pastors the College Church, First Congregational Church of Oberlin, Ohio. And over his career, he he claims 500,000 salvations, half a million salvations. That's crazy. He even says that he had as many as 50,000 in one week, but now settles down into the small church of Oberlin, Ohio. And there he begins to write books on revival and theology. But his books are much more practical than they are biblical. It's much, much more methodology than theology. And even his systematic, systematic theology book that he wrote is almost void of theology. It's pretty much just a how-to manual. And so there, what we see is the problems with Finney is not really his life, there's no character issues that are drawn into equation, there's no uh, disparity or dis- uh, of his character, but rather it truly is what he called these new measures. Now these new measures are something that we would even take offense to if we weren't so common with them, if it didn't have its place right there in the American church culture of today. So, the first thing is with this Second Great Awakening, which was a move away from Calvinism and a move towards Arminianism— Which, to be honest with you, is a good thing. I mean, I think Calvinism has its faults and flaws. We've talked about that with uh, the episode a a few weeks back, uh, talking about uh, Saint Augustine of Hippo, which I think is the origin of a lot of false doctrine uh, that's just embraced as church tradition. But I don't think Mister Augustine is somebody that we should be listening to or paying attention to. And I think that Luther had good things, but Luther based a lot of his things off of Augustine and. Then also, uh, Calvin was a pretty good theologian, but he based a lot of his off of Luther, basing his off of Mr. Hippo, and so that is the genesis of the problem there. Well, Finney was no theologian. Finney rejected the idea of original sin, that through Adam's sin, all have sinned, uh, which honestly began with St. Augustine of Hippo. Uh, you know, He was the one that first wrote it down and, and formulated the idea. Even though something of the such had been floated around for some time prior, he was the first one to formally write it and uh, stand behind it. And so Finney rejected that. He rejected the idea of original sin, that we're born sinners in need of redemption, and rather thought that we were born sinless and then we began to sin. He also rejected substitutionary atonement, which is that Christ died for our sins, and instead he said Christ died for Christ's sins, and that's not possible, Christ is sinless. And yeah, he did say that, that's ugly, that's awful, just shows you how little theological training Mr. Finney actually had. He said that Christ died for a purpose and not for a people, and that there was a purpose to Christ's death, but it wasn't to redeem sinners, but rather for a different purpose. He believed that salvation was to be obtained through repentance, not through faith that leads to repentance, but rather just through repentance itself, that you repented your way into sin. It was something that you did. You were capable of your own salvation. Well, if you're capable of your own salvation, you also have to be capable of losing your salvation, and Mr. Finney believed that every time a Christian committed a sin, he lost his salvation. Now that may account for the half a million salvations that Finney, uh, you know, claimed. Because out of that half a million salvations, that might have been like 500 people getting saved over and over and over again, like most revival preachers. They just raise your hand. Let me count the hands so that I can move to the next city and tell them how many, rev- you know, how many salvations we experienced. It's the numbers game, the head count game. It's something that churches still play today, especially non-church based ministries play that game very much. We have to show that we're successful. The way we do that is by quoting numbers, whether those numbers are true, correct, or accurate at all. And so he believed that you you had to get saved multiple times. If you sinned, you had to repent your way back into salvation. There was no security of the believer. Now, whether you believe in once saved, always saved, or the eternal security of the believer, or whether you believe that you can lose your salvation, I think everybody can reject that a Christian loses his salvation every time he sins. I think that we can all agree that that is just false on its face and not supported by scripture whatsoever. He also rejected justification by grace alone through faith alone, and rather that there was a works-based component to it. Now, modern day, even if you're not Calvinist, most people would say that no, grace is by faith, that salvation is by grace and through faith, and not of works lest any man can boast. Those are simple Bible quotes. That's easy for us to, to understand having read scripture. But Mr. Finney had a problem with that. Now, his new measures that he came up with when he split with the Presbyterian Church, these new measures are quite controversial of the day and quite common today. Sadly, a lot of people, because they saw his effectiveness, started to adopt his practices instead of examining them to see whether or not they're biblical at all. One of the most well-known practices that Mr. Finney uh, contributed to the Christian faith is what he called the anxious bench, which is that he would have this special location set up during his services that if you doubted your salvation or if you were... Uh, not saved and were contemplating salvation, he would have you come forward and sit on the anxious bench, which was where you would contemplate your salvation, whether you wanted to be a Christian or not. And also where he would point his finger and you know shoot his glances over, he would very much preach to these anxious benches. And today, that's pretty much what we have with our altar call. What Mr. Finney was basing this all off of was this theory that if you can get people to make small decisions, then making big decisions are easier. This is even used in sales techniques where they talk about getting the first yes. So instead of trying to get you to buy the whole shebang at once and agree to this big idea, rather they start asking you questions that are easy yeses. And so instead of saying, hey, will you sign this contract for $50,000, instead they go, now we both agree that, you know, water is wet, right? And you go, well, yes. And they go, and we both believe that summer is hot, right? And you go, well, yes. And they have you on the path of agreement then. And so Finney just kind of used this salesman technique in his church services. And today it's used by revivalists as well. You know, uh, You know, if you believe what I'm saying, will you raise your hand? You know, if you believe what I'm saying, will you come down and light a candle? If you, you know, these type of things. Getting people in the spirit of agreement for the big sale that's coming later. And he did believe that salvation was like making a sale. So not only did we get this anxious bench, this altar call of making small decisions to lead them to the big decision, But he also did some very controversial things of having women speak during the meetings. This is a no no in historical church. This is a no no in scripture. Sadly, this is pretty common today. And so, as we've moved, as we've progressed away from scripture, then we've started to allow a lot of these poor things in. He believed in marketing. So he was very much about marketing his meetings. He said that you could learn a lot from the politicians of the day who would hand out tickets and who would hand out pamphlets and brochures and things like that to try to generate interest in their political campaign in order to get a person's vote. And so he would make up tickets to his revival meetings and have his followers go and hand out these tickets for people so that they could come because he felt like that made them feel like the meeting was important or special to come to. And so today we have a lot of church marketing. We even have uh, independent businesses that uh, market only to churches for the use of their services for publicity for uh, branding for logo design for uh, these slicks and these graphics and uh, the intros and outro videos and all these different things. We even have ones that will write sermons for their pastors, and uh, and now even we have some pastors who are using AI like uh, Chat GPT in order to write their sermons. Sermons. And to be honest with you guys, I've heard a lot of preachers preach, and you know, AI would probably do a better job than they do. It's it's a sad world in which we live. There's a lot of preaching, very little biblical preaching going on today. There's a lot of performances, but there's not a lot of preaching today. But still, if you can't write your own sermons, and especially if you're going to artificial intelligence to write your sermons, resign. You need to resign. You're not a pastor. You're not a preacher. And if your, ser- if your pastor is getting his sermons from a book or getting his sermons from an internet company or docent research group, they need to resign too. That's J.D. Greer. That's, that's Ed Litton. That's all of those guys. They need to resign. They're not pastors. They're just performers. And so here he believed he introduced this marketing of the meetings into the church. And today we still have this problem. He introduced the altar call. We still have this problem. We have no model for altar call in our scripture whatsoever. You can twist it. As long as you want to twist it, man, you can try to get blood out of that turnip, but it's just not there. Salvation isn't from walking an aisle and saying a prayer. Salvation is from faith. That's it. It's by grace through faith. He believed in having these extended meetings lasting many days, uh, lasting for many hours. He also was one of the first ones to begin to use music to manipulate the crowd. So he believed music was utmost importance of getting someone to the point of salvation. And, of course, we see Jesus traveling with his favorite karaoke band and having to have the disciples, you know, the 12-piece choir sing in order for people to ever, you know, come to faith, right? I mean, uh, Paul clearly, you know, would have traveled with, his, with the Baptist guns, guns and, and roses of the day in order to get converts. So music has to be part of any kind of revival service, correct? yeah, see, that's again, it's just manipulation. People like music, music moves people, and so therefore let us use music to move people because we can't with the preaching and we can't with the gospel. He introduced a lot of modern music into it and also moved away from the congregational model that was historic and biblical, and instead moved to the choir-based, or today the performance-based, to where the choir sang at the congregation, the congregation did not sing. And so there was no congregational singing in Finney's uh, Finney's, uh, revivals, But rather, it was his trained choir that sang to the people and sang certain songs in certain ways to draw them. You know, you got to get a peppy one to begin with, and then you gradually move into slow mood music that then uh, the people are ready for you to go. And Billy Graham adopted this as well. He used to say that the music was the the plow that that tilled the soil for the seeds of the word to be planted. And Billy Graham... um, wasn't a good preacher, and wasn't a good pastor. He was real famous, and he traveled a lot, but when you actually listen to Billy Graham's sermons, they're lacking. And when you look at Billy Graham's discipleship model, it's laughable. And so Billy Graham isn't our model either, even though he was popular, and even though many people came to faith by Billy Graham, not a lot of people stayed in the faith with Billy Graham. So they use music to manipulate. We still see that today as churches put their best karaoke band on stage or best cover band with karaoke karaoke singers who follow the bouncing ball on the screen and sing to the congregation. And the congregation can sing if they want to, but it's very much performance-based. It's very much a show. It's a concert is what it is. And guys... It's been practiced, and it's been rehearsed in order to draw them to a certain conclusion. The songs were chosen for a reason. The order of the songs was chosen for a reason. When the song gets real quiet, and then it gets really loud again, that was pre-planned. It was chosen for a reason. And the reason is the same as Mr. Mr. Finney used it to manipulate the will of man. Now, his sermons were also very different from the sermons of the day. During that time, it was very popular for for the pastors to write out their sermons, and then they would deliver their sermons off of a manuscript. And instead, Mr. Finney moved away from that. He was very much more on the spur of the moment. In his sermons, he said that we could learn a lot from actors, so sir, So, Mr. Finney's uh, great examples that he tried to follow were politicians and actors. Wow, that, that doesn't hit home, does it? And so he said that you know, the, the actor entertains, the actor engages, the actor uh, draws attention and uses the power of story and then moves people with, with scare and with terror and all of these different psychological tricks. Today, a lot of pulpits are just performances. And they have stories, lots of stories, man, meant to make you laugh and meant to move you, meant to scare you, meant to inspire you, and all of this. And at the end, you can remember the story, but you can't remember the scripture that was used. So the scripture takes a back seat to the story. And instead of being a preacher of the gospel, they become a storyteller of. Idioms. They use many psychological tricks with the inflection of their voice and and with the getting quiet or even the fake crying. Have y'all ever been in service and seen a pastor fake cry? Wow, that's instantaneous. You know, discrediting in my opinion. If you've got to perform, if you've got a fake cry, then man, we're done. But this gives way to modern day, man. We have our, our prop comics who preach, you know, the ones who, you know, they're, they're preaching while they're laying in a casket or they use these different props on stage or visual illustrations and things. <sighs> Guys, can we just move past that? Can we just do better? Like, if that's your church, find another church or find another pastor. I mean, one of the two. Come on, let's just go back to the Word of God props and gimmicks and and tricky sermon titles meant to entice you or make you curious about what it is. Just click here. That's all it is. It's clickbait preaching. And so it's, you know, the five Ps of prosperity, the the you know, what in hell do you want, you know, these type of sermon titles that are meant just to prick somebody's curiosity. And there's nothing really inside but jokes and stories and, and, uh, and these type of things. They're meant to entertain you, not to inform you, not to provoke you, not to teach you the word of God, but rather entertainment by performers after the concert. That's all it is. Mr. Finney went as far as to say that revival is not a move of God. He literally said that. Revival is not a move of God, but rather the use of good methods. He said basically what he believed was that man had free will. And hey, I believe man had free will. The The Christian church for 350 years taught that man had free will. Before it got perverted, and there, when you know a lot of this uh, predestination and and Calvinism election you know kind of came into the church for the first three hundred and fifty years. The church taught free will, but Mr. Finney believed that if man has free will, then you can manipulate that will into salvation. Do you see how silly that is that you can trick somebody into getting saved now. One of my favorite stories, and I'm not going to name the lady because last time I did, she 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 didn't appreciate it too much. But I know a young lady that uh that well now she you know uh, she's a mother now, but uh, she was telling me about that growing up that she went to church and she went to this VBS and she remembered going to VBS and she said they were all having fun and having a good time and she said and then all of a sudden somebody said something and a bunch of people raised their hand and so she raised her hand too. And she said, and then, you know, like two, three weeks later, I got baptized. And she was like, so I, I accidentally got saved. <laughs> you know, this is pretty much the Finney model this is what finney believed is that you can you can set the stage right you can lower the lights right you can put the right music on and if you perform the 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 sermon so called in the right way and if you bring it to the right conclusion and then we play the right song during altar call and if i can just get them to 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 step out if i can just get them to raise their hand if i can just get them with every head bowed and every eye closed um those who are thinking about salvation, look up, look up, look up at me, just trying to get the first yes. Then if I can get all of that right, then I can get them saved versus a move of the Holy Spirit upon the hearts of man. Friends, I'm going to tell you, on my preaching, I tell people all the time that, uh, you know, if you get saved under my preaching, it's got to be the Holy Spirit because we don't try to manipulate nothing. There's no guilt used. There's no anything. And uh, people say, well, I just want to bring so-and-so to your church so that they can get saved. And I tell them, the Holy Spirit doesn't need me for salvation. You know, we can pray and he may use me. He may choose that method, but don't think that bringing somebody to church gets them saved. It's a move of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't move, then it can't be done. So we believe in free will, but we also believe that man is drawn to God by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word. Those are the two things that do the work. And so there's nothing that Brother Jonathan can add, but Brother Jonathan is called to be faithful. He is called to be biblical. He is called to do things God's way. And so it's not for us to change the motives and the methods of, of God's church in order to get a certain result. The ends do not justify the means. God is in control of his church. We do things God's way. We don't seek to appeal to lost man. We don't allow lost man to dictate how we have our church services. Our church services are primarily and exclusively for the approval and for the benefit of our God. He's the object of our worship. He's the object of our preaching. He's the object of our obedience and our faithfulness. And so, therefore, he determines the methods that we employ in worship. He determines the scripture and the things that are preached in our services, not our whims, not what we think will draw a crowd, not what we think will be popular or fill the plates and fill the pews, but rather, are we being faithful to what our God has said and what our God has written? So the things that we can see is, first off, everything has a beginning. So often we just accept things because we think that's the way they've always been, but everything has a beginning. And we can trace those things back to its beginning and then judge it off of its beginning. So are altar calls a good thing? No. No, they're not. Where did they come from? Large part, they came from Finney, the way that we know them today. Is the use of music uh, in service a good thing? Well, absolutely it is. We're called for that. We're called to sing. We're called to praise. We're called to come together and, and, and to sing. But the rock and roll worship service is a hand-me-down from Finney. The stage singing at the crowd is a hand-me-down from Finney. And Finney is not a theologian. He may be in church history, but he's not a hero. He's not a hero. He was very divisive and he was very innovative. But friends, just because something's new does not mean it's good. Just because it's new does not mean it's good. And we live in a world, a culture today of the hot new thing, of this new invention, this new idea. But we have to judge everything. We have to test everything and see, is it good? Not is it new, not is it popular, not is it working, but rather, is it good? Is it a good thing? Is it a godly thing? Is it scriptural? Is it biblical? And we judge it off of that. We don't simply judge it off of that a lot of people like this. Again, we're not here for the liking of a lot of people. We're here to please our God. If God loves it, then we do it. And if God mandates it, we absolutely do it. And if it pleases God, we take great joy in doing it. But just because people like it, doesn't mean anything. That doesn't factor into our decision-making whatsoever. We do what's right. We always do what's right, and therefore we can be righteous in our doing. So everything has a beginning, and we should look for what the beginning is. New doesn't mean better. And also drawing a crowd, a lot of times guys that can draw a crowd are just drawing a crowd away They're just being drawn away by these guys. So just because it's a big church, just because it's in a convention hall, just because it's a concert, uh, doesn't mean that it's good. Just because it sells a lot of records doesn't mean that it's a good or godly song. There's a lot of Christian artists today who are not even Christians and lowercase artists. They're just kind of B-level secular artists who said that if I throw Jesus into the song a little bit, then I can sell my record. And there they can't take a hard stance on homosexuality, Lauren Daigle. Here they, they don't even have a biblical worldview. Um, but here we just adopt it and we just go forward with it. And then when they start denying the faith and leaving Christianity, we step back and go, oh, wow, what happened to these Christian artists? They were never Christians, they were just artists. They knew that they could sell sappy love songs about Jesus to a bunch of nitwit Christians who didn't judge anything, who never sat and said, now is this biblical? We've examined people's talent. We've examined people's um, giftedness instead of examining their character. Everybody could have seen Josh Harris walk away. Everybody could have seen Ray Boltz turn homosexual. Everybody could have seen these things, but we were too busy applauding the talent versus actually examining the heart and saying, are they a Christian? And so that's what makes worship, worship isn't the songs, it's not the It's not the quality, but rather it's the sincerity in the worship. And so, you know, you can have some old choir lady singing off tune, and, you know, she's tone deaf, and, and, man, you know, she's screeching, and God loves it because she means every word of it, and, man, her heart is bursting forward. You can have old Joe Deacon on the back that he's just, quote, you know, croaking like a bullfrog, ain't sung a thing, he's just singing as deep as he thinks his register can go on every note, no high notes, no low notes, it's just bullfrog croaking in the back row of the of the the choir, and guess what? God can love it if that old bullfrog just is singing from a sincere heart and means every word of the song, and that's where true worship lies. And then we can have the most talented songstress. We can have the most talented guitar player, man. Get up there and just absolutely do the most beautiful music that we've ever heard and hit the notes just perfectly that we've ever heard. And man, we just have such a grand appreciation for the giftedness of that person. And if it's just a performance, God has no pleasure in it. It's a mockery of his stage. It's a mockery of his people, and it's against his nature and his character. So with that, worship is in spirit and in truth. Sometimes it's not necessarily in key. Not only that, but we see that revivalism, guys, it's not Christianity. It's just not. And a lot of churches are built off of this revivalism model of just anything you can do to get them in the door, anything you can get, do to get them down the aisle to say the prayer, anything you can do to get them to fill out the piece of paper so that we have a record of them, and then we have to give them a job so that they keep showing up. You know, They, they have to be opening the door. They have to be helping park. They have to be helping clean up. They got to be you know tending to the coffee bar. We just got to get them involved in order to keep them here. Well, that's because revivalism doesn't promote faith. It, provi- it, it promotes decisionalism, and that's it. So a lot of people, they have a emotional experience. They flame up, man, they're on fire for the Lord. Nah, they've just been manipulated. And then before long, they begin to backslide because they never were a Christian, and they slide right on out the door. And what's sad is that a lot of revival preachers, a lot of people who follow this model, a lot of our uh, contemporary church model guys who have fallen into the church marketing, the music manipulation, the performed sermons, um, they don't know how to disciple. They don't actually ground the people in the word. They just go from one emotional experience to the next emotional experience to the next emotional experience. So, guys, what we have to be cautious of is that a lot of times new ways are just old lies. And a lot of new hints and tips and tricks are just simply wiles of the devil. We can go back to the old ways. We can go back to what has always worked. And there we can have success. We sing songs about God to God from a heart of love of God. And we preach God's word to the people, capital on God's word, lowercase on preaching. God's word should preach and the preacher should read God's word and expound upon God's word and bring great glory to God's word as it's written not with having to put a lens or a filter upon it, not trying to neuter it, not trying to manipulate it. Grab one verse from here and one verse from three books over and another verse over here and tell some jokes and stories, and then we're dismissed. That's junk. That's junk. That's a stand-up comedian. That's a performer. That's a TED Talk. That's a motivational speech. That's Tony Robbins. That's what that is. But rather, we go to the scriptures and we allow the scriptures to speak for us so friends that's been another episode of the woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts we see a lot of mr finney we see finney not only historically wrong but we also see him wrong in the present day we see a lot of carryovers from finney's success or so-called success that still resides within the church walls today and it shouldn't be Friends, let's always examine the beginnings of things. Let's judge everything according to scripture and not just because it's always been that way. Let's not fall for the newest best thing, but rather let's look for the things that are truly valuable and especially eternally valuable. Until next time, friends, share the light of the gospel, speak the truth in love, and make a difference for the Lord every day.